welcome to episode six of the Owning Wilderness Life Skills podcast. I'm your host, Bear. And I'm Trent. And today we are continuing on to part two of the John Wesley Powell expedition into the Grand Canyon. That's right. The year is 1869 and John's crew has been fighting hunger, cold, fatigue, and injuries. And with the odds stacked against him, I'm wondering just how much he and his crew can handle. So go ahead and kick up your feet and join us as we find the conclusion of this historic journey. And maybe, just maybe, find a few tips and tricks so you don't, don't go, go dying in the woods. All right, guys, welcome back. Uh, we are moving into part two, the second half of the John Wesley Powell expedition into the Grand Canyon. And they are struggling right now it is rough out there so we're going to recap a little bit for you yeah so basically if you remember uh we had three of the crew looking at this gigantic rapid and howland uh one of the three actually had pulled john aside they went for a little walk and he told how he told john this is you're gonna die <laughs> we're not doing this and so he and dunn and seneca decided that they were not going to partake in the running of this rapid set and we're actually choosing to go across the desert um, for a 75 mile hike towards a mormon settlement that was supposedly not too far off now you say supposedly and for the first half of this story i was so enraptured in it and it's so interesting because i don't know this history um, and kind of because of their situation, they don't have a lot of options. So we haven't been too critical on their survival skills or their choices they've made. Uh, but in this situation, I would like to point out if you're with a group of people and you have water and you're in the desert, it might be scary, but I still think it's a bad choice to leave the group to go into uncharted desert when they're not a hundred percent sure where they are in the canyon the settlement may or may not be exactly where they think it is. And just a couple degrees over 75 miles, you can be way off target. So they may get lost out there, be walking in the wrong direction. I think it's more sketchy for them to move off on their own into unknown desert than it would have been to stay with the group, try to get through it. But I also understand the fear of something dangerous directly in your face. Yeah, that's an absolutely valid point, you know, because you have to remember that up to this point, they had lost their maps of the area. Everything that they were using to navigate with is with the expedition. The maps that they do have that they are guessing from are ones that have been hand drawn. Um, so they're they're really just kind of going out at the mercy of their memory and the mercy of the desert, which is a hard place. Now, August, this is August uh, 27th, so this or August 28th, this is still the tail end of the monsoon season. And the monsoon season down there dumps massive amounts of water into the desert. But I can tell you from having been down there that that water may stick around for a little bit, but it disappears pretty darn quick as well. So going out there thinking that they're going to have access to those those puddles left behind, that's going out on a prayer, man. Absolutely. I can understand the lack of morale after going through increasingly difficult rapids and white water and just being beat up constantly. But that is a lot of hope to have. To yeah. move out into a desert and assume without knowing where there are consistent water holes, 
that you're going to be able to find water and make it happen in 75 miles is that's hard to carry water for three men for 75 miles in the desert. It's not a logical decision. They're, they're basing this on the fear of death and it's, they're obviously scared to their living wits about what they're looking down and facing. And it's just, it's too much for them. They feel this insurmountable, but Looking at this, you gotta, we have to remember that this isn't a military unit. Yes, these are a unit of, this expedition is made up of military veterans, but in no way is this a military unit. This is a mishmash of civilian volunteers at this point who are just doing this because they, they want to be a part of something great. The last piece of discovery you know, in the, the United States. Yeah, and with them being volunteers, that's important to note because you don't get men for an expedition like this volunteering that don't have grit and yeah. knowledge and understanding of some of what they're getting into. So these are not just scared teenage kids. These aren't people who uh, were drafted and don't want to be there. These men have the knowledge and wanted to be there. But while I can understand the fear of death pushing someone out away from whatever project they're on, this is a personal thing. I've in my head and watching movies, the blaze of glory is romanticized. And I would rather die in a blaze of glory or in a quick moment or a couple moments or an hour rather than dying from dehydration out in the desert slowly and with no idea of where I am. Yeah. It, it's a, I, I don't want to die out there in the desert, man. <laughs> you, know, <laughs> yeah. you know, I would, I would stay with this expedition and I, and I've spent a lot of time, as I said in the last episode, reflecting upon, would I have made that same decision to leave the party? And I know from looking at whitewater, man, it can be scary and intimidating sometimes. And that's why we, you know, portage is a thing, but here they are at this point, they can't portage. And they actually have to face this rapid in the boat if they are willing to continue any further. And here's the other thing is that this expedition has no idea how much further they have to go in this canyon. They're, they're at the mercy of it. And so they don't know if they've got... Now, now I know, because I know the story. Yes, of <laughs> but, Hindsight is twenty twenty yeah, with but, history. Yeah, but looking back, these men have no idea if it's going to be another month of this, if it's going to be another three hours before they leave the canyon walls behind them and go out into the open countryside. Yeah, no, that can be so intimidating. Also, a little bit freeing. So... If you're thinking forward, thinking forward, thinking forward, it can squash your morale to not know. But if you're just looking at the rapid and how do I do this and how do I act right now, you can just completely be a piece of that moment and put all your thought process into it, everything like that. Not knowing and if you're able to let go can be helpful, but also I know how not knowing can just destroy morale which is why since they've lost their maps and it hasn't been mapped before the fact that they're still going and they didn't go oh well you know what we'll go with you if it's 75 miles away we'll let's all go and restock and then get some horses and wagons bring gear back out start the same spot and go yeah so it's so impressive to me that they're like no 
We're staying on this. We're still going. Well, and at that note, you know, Bradley is in there. And, you know, when he's talking about Seneca and Dunn and Howland, he's saying, you know, hey, they're leaving us with these good feelings. But, you know, and we regret their loss, right? They're good guys and the best of fortune for them. But we've decided that we are going to run these rapids or we're going to perish in the attempt. Like They've already made their, their yeah. mind up. So here's six remaining men. And they're like, we don't give a shit. We are going to run these rapids no matter what happens to us. This is our lot right now. We choose this. I got chills thinking about it. But if we <laughs> choose this right now. Well, I want to make a point on that for any younger guys listening. Because as we talked about being cool in difficult situations, that is how you do it. I've made this decision and I'm going to either die doing it or I'm going to do it. Yeah. And from then on, you're not anxious. You're second guessing yourself. You're just committed to that decision. Committing to a decision will take out all of your second guessing. Yep. And that's what doing Bradley's it, doing. No matter right what. Now. Yep. And the other men too, you know, John, and I'm sure John actually had a lot to do with that. Cause you gotta remember John Wesley Powell, he's got one arm this whole time. Yeah. All right. <laughs> I mean, he's got his brother Walter to help him out, but you know, dude, he's got a one arm. He's a one armed hardcore dude. And he's going to do this. Right. So, Powell, at this point, he decides that he's actually going to, you know, join Andy Hall as well as the expedition cook aboard their 24-foot dory known as Kitty's sister. Now, they take the boat and they push it off into the current and they're shooting along the rock wall and dangerously grazing this one large rock. And just before reaching the second fall, they pull directly into the smooth tongue of water that pours into the mouth of the whitewater. So this is it. That's the, there's no return. And the whole time, Seneca and Dunn and Howland, they're watching this happen from up above on the cliff's edge. Um, but they didn't know there was an unseen hole that they hadn't been able to see from their scouting position. And when they shot into that hole, this 24-foot dory filled to the brim with water. And then after that, they just, bam, smack into this giant wave. But in less than a second, miraculously that boat just punches through that wall of water and so hall and hawkins are just ripping hard on those oars man just cranking on them and the whole time pal's in there with his one arm waving just yelling at these men to keep it up put your back into those oars and you know he's just shouting commands and these guys are narrowly avoiding that great dangerous rock that is in that middle of the channel they actually end up slamming through that rapid in less than 60 seconds. That whole ordeal that they had been humming and hawing about and reflecting on took less than 60 seconds to get through. So the Maid of the Canyon, which is the other boat that's remaining at this point, follows that same line through the uproar. And again, absolutely, incredibly miraculous. Both boats go through this rapid undamaged <laughs> so and and this here is a testament to the fact that at this point they're experienced oarsmen they they scouted and they have a lot of that hard-earned experience and here it is reflecting paying off with their lives yeah like nothing can account for experience and even with the experience that these men already had the first portion of this journey has been experience after experience after experience. Compounding even the, on each other. Yeah, even in the canyon, as the rapids have grown more and more dangerous, they have gotten experience on these really rough white waters and know better how to work them now. Yep. 
Yeah, they're reading the water. They know how to operate their boats. And that's the thing is that the more time you spend on the river in your boat, it, it becomes a part of you. Yeah, it really yeah. does. So before, like right below the fall that they just went through, you know, these men that have just come through this harrowing experience of going through this rapids are now extremely exhilarated. They are ecstatic. And they're yelling up at Howlands and Dunn and Seneca, hey, get in the boat. You got this. Come on down. Let's go. And they're trying to talk them back into joining the expedition. Um, but this is that pivotal point in our story where these three men instead of going down and getting in their boat and trying to follow the same line that these other gentlemen had take, they just turn their backs and they walk off into the desert. And because of that, that's, this is the spot where John Wesley Powell called this separation rapids. And when he, and, and these men, they were never seen again. And because of this, the only three words that Powell wrote in his journal were the boy or boys left us. That was it. That's all there was to it. Yeah. So all that morning, the remaining two boats, they just battled down a series of just terrifying rapid after terrifying rapid until about mid-afternoon, they encountered yet more of that volcanic rock and what was an unrunnable section of whitewater that they would actually eventually dub Lava Cliff Rapid. And they determined that they were going to line the rapid by tying together several ropes, lengths of rope. Now, lining a rapid, let me explain what that means. That means that they're taking their dory, they're putting a rope on it. A couple of the men are going up on shore and they're feeding that rope out, allowing that dory to just be lined down, down the rapid, as it said. So this time... Bradley, this crazy guy, yeah. he volunteers to stay in the boat. Of course so he does. He's like, I'm going to stay in the maid of the canyon. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to help feed her and you guys go up there. So he's in the boat and he's got his oars and he's bouncing the boat off the rocks and he's just getting beat all to hell from here. Now, Powell's, John, John Wesley Powell's brother, uh, Walter, as well as John Sumner, they carried 130 feet of rope. Okay, and they scrambled up the rocky cliff next to it. And because of this, Bradley soon became obscured by the overhang of the edge and they couldn't they couldn't see him down there. So Bradley's down there in the Maiden Canyon and he's fending off the rocks and pushing off the walls with his oars. And the boat is literally lurching foot by foot as these men up, up high are paying it out, just paying the rope out. Now, the Maid of the Canyon gets caught up in a little bit of the white water, actually rolls and tumbles, okay, with Bradley in it. Somehow Bradley maintains his position in the boat, does not get washed out, but he is now soaked and just probably at this point, his adrenaline has got to be pumping. Just oh, absolutely. Hardcore. I mean, he volunteered to stay in the boat, but he really didn't want to get out. No. When it rolled. Yeah. Well, hey, nobody does, right? And so in short order, as these men are climbing, like, climbing just higher and higher above the river, of course, what happens? Well, the rope runs out. Okay. So Walter, John Wilson Powell's brother, actually wraps the end of that rope around a rock knob. And John Sumner dashes back to go get some more rope. Meanwhile, here's poor Bradley in this boat, not having any clue what's going on, um, stopped in the river, and it is just bouncing violently back and forth, and here he's stuck in the maid. So each time that boat would hit a rock, um, the boat would just shudder unbelievably, um, probably sound like absolute horrendously thunderous death to Bradley as he sits there, and he kind of realizes at that point that 
he doesn't have much longer. So with that remarkable coolness that he liked to say that he said that he had, in fact, his quote from his journal said, just as I always am, afraid while danger is approaching, but cool in the midst. Which is kind of what we refer to as yep, Keep it calm, keep it steady, keep it cool. He is a guy who makes a decision and is so committed to it, he doesn't see other ways out that he freaks out. What else should I be doing? He decides to be there. He knows he should be there. He's going to do what he can while he's there. Yeah, and he's just going to maintain mission priority. Absolutely. You know, and that's one thing, too. Is that when, This is why when you're in a survival situation, knowing your survival priorities can be such a huge boon to you being able to, you know, not only stay focused, but know what to do next. You know? Yeah. yeah that, just, just, oh, there is not, more often than not, there's no time to think about the next step. Yeah. So if you haven't run through the priorities, if you haven't practiced it, you have a brain fart sitting out there in the whitewater. That's yeah. that, that's it. Well, in crisis is no time to reinvent the wheel. Yeah. By any means. <laughs> and again, gentlemen, folks listen to this. This is why we want you to come join us up here in Estes Park. You know, reach out to us on Facebook. You know, you have our email address, which is just owning wilderness life skills at gmail.com. We want to hear from you. Right, Trent? Yeah, absolutely. We want want questions from you. We want opinions from you. We want to know what you want to hear about, what you're not sure on, what you feel really confident in, and then we've described it differently confusion, anything like that. we That's what we're here for. That's what we want to do. We want you to come out, hang with us, and learn these skills. Uh, because, you know, Trent and I, we've done some stupid things, which have enabled us to come through and have some amazing skills. We want to, you know, Brett, share yeah, with you guys. One of us down the line may have a family member with the last name Bradley. I'm not sure. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's very possible. Or pal, who knows? So, you know, here's Bradley. He's in the boat, and it's just rocking back and forth, being shook by this whitewater. He has Actually unsheathes his knife because at this point he's like, I'm cutting that line. I'm, I'm just going to cut it and we're going to flow down the river. Um, and so at, while he's doing that, he's desperately scanning that foaming cataract down river looking for that quote, I'm doing air quotes here, best channel through. <laughs> <laughs> so he pauses for several long moments because, you know, he does, he's, he's waiting, right? He's just waiting for that moment. Like, My boat's still here, but I'm still here, but I'm knife at the ready. And he's waiting above, you know, for those men that are standing up there to deal a more slack, but of course none is coming. And at the exact moment, literally, he leans over with that knife forward to cut the line, but the force of the water rips the stem post right out of the bow of the boat. And with such violent violence, it flies 30 feet into the air, still attached to the rope. So it's like a rocket that that maiden of the canyon shoots down forward into the maelstrom and Bradley getting off a first, then a second stroke to swing the bow into the waves before the water takes complete control. Now, just when the men that were above glimpse the mate of the canyon, it plunges into a deep hole and it disappears. But in the next instance, the maids spat out and crests a massive standing wave only to smash into yet another wall of water. So narrowly skirting some rocks, and this is due more to luck than to Bradley's flailing (laughs) efforts at this point, you know, because he's just doing everything he can, but he's one man in this giant boat. The maid of the canyon simply vanishes into the madly foaming brown white water. 
And John Wesley Powell wrote about this experience, watching Bradley go through this um, ordeal. And he wrote that we were standing frozen with fear for we saw no boat. And then an exclamation, with an exclamation point, he writes, Bradley is gone. So they're thinking they've lost their man. But then far below, this dark object just emerges from the froth. And somehow the boat, with its man still in it, had come through intact, right? So the hard-breathing Bradley, he's like waving his hat in exultation, just yeah, you know? But he had not yet escaped the, the massive whirlpool that still had the maiden of the canyon in steely grip. So not aware of how badly the boat might be damaged, and he's like wondering, he's like, is it sinking? Pal yelled out for his brother and Sumner to get Bradley a line. Now, in what is looked back at as the most dangerous and impulsive decision of the trip. John Wesley Powell, Hall, and Hawkins raced down the cliff face. And what do they do? They all jump into the kitty sister and frantically push off to the rescue. Oh, good grief. Yeah, so, okay, where are these men's head at, right? First off, massive adrenaline, seeing they've lost three guys just not what is moments before, heading off into the desert. Here's their brother going downstream. You know, this is a bad situation. Yeah, absolutely. And where he's obscured and he's running that line, like he's he was running it lined. Yeah. They're not doing that. They're just running through these boulders and these rapids and hoping they make it. And then in the area where they could actually see his boat, he disappeared twice. Yeah. So they're just like, we got to get our brother. And that's all they're thinking about. And I got to give him props for that. Like having the fortitude to just be like, I'm okay to die to go save my brother. Yep. At the same time, real dumb. Real dumb. Real but, dumb. But I'm telling you, I might have ran down and jumped in that boat with him. You know, because in the heat <laughs> yeah, of the moment, oh, yeah. you know, you have that. It's almost like the lemming effect, where it's especially like when you're looking in someone else in danger and you want to do something for them, and one guy begins to move, you just are moving. Sometimes it Absolutely. just happens, especially if you're part of a unit that is trained together, right? Yeah. If you're just instinctually, this guy's moving, so I'm moving, and here goes John running. I get chills telling this story. Today. Yeah, well, and the other thing it's just is, incredible. Like, you follow them. He's down there, and you see him in danger, and if point A is where your boat is beached. And point B is him. Like yeah. he did make it there. Yeah, he so did. Like, of course we can make it. We gotta get to right. him because that whirlpool is the danger. If he made it through here, we can get to him. I mean, they probably didn't think that through, like you said, just no. adrenaline. It's instinct instinct at but that point. Again, I gotta give them props for the safety or well being or life of their brothers on this journey yeah. being more important than their second guessing yeah, or anxiety about it. Now, on the journey up to this point, John Sumner had always been the one that was, you know, engineering the emergency descents and rescues. But this time, like we're talking about, Pal took charge. So here's this one-armed major in the expedition's two youngest members driving right into the river's maw. And because of their, they're, just, they're quite just flying into it, they're not really able to swing their bow directly downstream. And at this point, Powell realizes the absolute impetuousness of this decision <laughs> and the moment they smash headlong into that first wave. Now, he had thought he had seen a line through the rapid, but the waves, they were washing away any such plan in just about an instant. At the foot of the holes right there, the waves, they were like 
animate beasts, right? And depending on when a boat hits it, which is often a matter of mere seconds, a wave is either going to let it pass or other times it might just bend a boat so forcefully as to just crush it and collapse it back into that hole. What exactly happened then to the kitty sister was lost in the madness of that moment, all right? And Bradley watched as they came inches from dashing themselves to pieces against the rocks. Now, Powell later would reconstruct their passage as best he could, and he wrote, a wave rolls over us and our boat is unmanageable. Another great wave strikes us and the boat rolls over and tumbles and tosses. But I not know how. <laughs> it, it, it's just pure. They were at the mercy. Getting hit that hard, he doesn't yep. know which way is up. He's just holding on. He's wet. I hope I see daylight soon. <laughs> yeah. Now, Bradley, who had actually managed to escape that whirlpool, he now turned to rescue the rescuers. <laughs> and so he's pulling each floaty man into the safety of the eddy, and only the watertight compartments of each boat had prevented it from sinking. And it is doubtful whether the vessels, if they had been heavily loaded, as they were supposed to have been, could actually have survived all that tumultuousness. You know, if they, were, if they had their full load of gear and they hadn't been so deprived of everything that they had, those boats might not have had the buoyancy to stay above the water and get these men through. So the they actually ended up riding uh, Kitty's sister, so getting her flipped back over, and then they bailed her out. And then they climbed aboard and rowed over to the bank to await Summer and Sumner and Walter, you know, who are climbing down the cliffside at this point. And only luck had saved them this time from Powell's impulsive decision. Like basically, he put his crew at absolute risk and this is one of those moments where it was pure unadulterated luck that they had survived absolutely i mean you get into that situation and when it's a rough situation you want to save somebody's life the thing you want on your side is experience and with his adrenaline pumping he left the two most experienced dudes hanging on the cliffside yeah, took the youngest men yeah let's go get let's go boys all right let's go <laughs> we're gonna die today let's go absolutely <laughs> you know so what's funny was is bradley when you read through his journals um after every rapid he writes that was the worst rapid of the trip yes and um, after yeah. this one he stands he wrote it stands at number one of the trip is what he wrote <laughs> you know it's uh, like, okay. this is the worst rapid. this is the number one so, well, and I thought about it before, um, when they ran those rapids right after the three men left the group, they made a decision based on something that only took 60 seconds yep. and they could have survived. But if that was already their headspace, had they come back down, I feel like they would have decided to leave again upon reaching these rapids. It's very possible. It's very, very possible. Now, at this point... Like for these guys, though, there's nothing to do but to shake your head, right? So they're they're drenched, their their bodies are just hurting, but the only option they have is to just continue downstream. That's yeah. where these guys are at. So in two or three miles further down the river, it turned northwest and it actually passed out of the granite. And by noon the following day on August 29th, the cliffs they drop away, the mountains receded. And they entered a valley that they knew just from looking at the maps ahead of time was the Grand Wash. So they had finally left the Grand Canyon behind them. And this was just a little more than 24 hours since the other men, three men, had left them and started their journey out to the desert. They only had 24 more hours to go and they would have been out of the canyon and two out more, of the maw. Two more severe rapids and you'd be still with the group 
a little bit wet, a little bit sore, but out of the canyon. Yep. So, you know, when Powell was back home after the journey was done and he's in his study <laughs> and he's writing his expedition report, um, he would, Powell actually reached for an apt metaphor to voice the relief the entire party felt after three months, and this is in quotes here, of pain, gloom, and terror. So those claustrophobic days, they brought to mind the time he spent in the makeshift hospital back at Shiloh, battling the tides of pain from his shattered arm, which is, a, is an amazing story, too. Someday we, we should talk about, you know, the Civil War and his exploits there. But in a rare disclosure of feelings for a man who rarely acknowledged them, and this was known about John Wesley Powell, he wasn't one that shared his feelings. He was tough. He was a man's man drove forward. This is why, you know, he was such, such the character he was. But um, I'd like to read this excerpt here. So he said, when he who has been chained by wounds to a hospital cot until his canvas tent seem like a dungeon cell, until the groans of those who lie about tortured with probe and knife are piled up, a weight of horror on his ears that he cannot throw off, cannot forget, and until the stench of festering wounds and anesthetic drugs has filled the air with its loathsome burthen. When he at last goes out into the open field, what a world he sees. How beautiful the sky. How bright the sunshine. Well, folks, that there, that's, that's the story I wanted to bring to you. It's a, it's, a, it's a story of adventure and strife. And in, how did he put it? He said pain and gloom and terror. <laughs> yeah, it's... It's so impressive that they made it through. It's unfortunate those three men were never heard from again. But those are the kind of things I sit around and hope for. You know, an, an area that hasn't been explored, an expanse I can go into and map out and spend months out there, and it's actually got a purpose. The other thing is, you'll never know until you're there, would I have the stones for it? Because yeah. I'm all about preparing and going out and being ready, and I've trained on all my skills before I go into these places and I read up books on what foliage is there, what the wildlife is like there, what the terrain is like there. I get maps for it. Would I have the stones to do something months long like that with no map, no pre-knowledge of the expedition I'm about to step out on with a half-crazed man who's only got one arm? Yeah. You know, and I've spent a lot of time in my life, even as, you know, I'm in my 40s, and I still look at the mountains and I'm called out. And I know that it is rare that I'm going to step or see some spot that no man before me has seen. And those, those days, it's sad that those are kind of gone. They, you know, they say, you know, that unless you're in the depths of the, the jungle or you want to go to the bottom of the ocean or you want to go out into space, that that exploration, that sense of adventure is gone but i say there's always antarctica i mean yes that's <laughs> that's very true two of my well one slightly more practical thought has been deep 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 into the wilderness in canada yeah or out in alaska they're much less explored but you will still come across trap lines yep there's um, people there's still people out there yep the other one much less practical 
that I've thought about for many, many years, especially since reading. Uh, there's this book, guys, that I love. It's called The Last of the Breed by Louis Moore. Oh, it's Moore. amazing. It's an incredible survival story, story during the Cold War. You guys should all check it out if you're into survival stuff. One of the coolest survival stories, strictly survival, I've ever read. Half the Russian army's after him. He's trying to survive in Siberia. And that's I, I the, fully endorse reading this book. That's it's the good. less practical thing I've thought about is checking out Siberia. Yeah. But, I mean, you're still going to get the Tungus and the reindeer people. And, like, people still live out there. So sure. it, it really is, like, Well, and there was people here, right? It, it's, it's not to say that the canyon hadn't been explored. Because you go down there, there are petroglyphs throughout the Grand Canyon. So, you know, we, we had that native population that was expanded across the entirety. So we look at it. Yeah, it's, but to the exploration's eyes of mapping something new. Well, the other thing is, if I think I'm in the wilderness, and I take a spin around, and I'm looking at what's around me, and I see a petroglyph, I'm like, oh, that's cool. When I turn around and I see a fence or a telephone pole, I get a little pissed off. Yeah. So that, that's what I'm saying now. To yep. get places where you can't see civilization is a lot harder now. It, it really is. There's places here in Rocky Mountain National Park that you know we have the um, the highway that goes up over it, and it's called Trail Ridge Road, and it sees somewhere you know between three to four million people that will travel across that road every year. But you can look down into what's known as Bear Valley, and it's only been traveled by a handful of people, you know, ever. And it's so wild and so dense, and some of those mountains. It, it, especially here in the Rocky Mountains in Colorado, there's places that you could step somewhere where no one might have stepped ever before. Might have come close. But there's still that exploration that you can find. Um, but it's following in the footsteps of those that came before. And this is also why I feel so passionate about, you know, um, wilderness ethics and morals about preservation. And keeping well, things alive for future generations. That's what I was going to say. Because the reason I'm fine with seeing a petroglyph is that's the only sign that they were there. Yeah. That's it. Yeah. When you see a telephone line, there's an entire swath of trees, an entire line cut down to make room for that. Yep. Or you can see a house somewhere and there's clearings cut out. Or there's roads that run to it. There's always an extra cut into wild lands where people are for the yeah. last at least century. Well, you guys, I really hope you guys have enjoyed listening to this podcast. It was our first part two podcast um, that we had to break it up. And we're going to be doing more of this. But I just want to reiterate, we want you to come out here and spend time with the both of us out here in the Rocky Mountain wilderness and kind of learn some of the skills that we have to teach you. So either you are somebody who is already highly skilled and you just want to come out and spend some time and hone those in in a new environment, or you're somebody who is brand new to this or just starting out because there's no shame in that. We all started somewhere and you know, it's better to go and pick up these skills from those who have been honing them their whole lives. Yeah, absolutely, guys. And our classes aren't going to be enormous. So if you're in a class where maybe some guys aren't as experienced as you, we can still come to you and give you a little bit of advanced tips um, and just sharpening up those skills where with other people we'll be teaching the very basics. We're not going to treat you like children if you already have skills. And we're not going to treat you like children if you don't have any skills. Uh, we're assuming you're intelligent human beings. You're going to come out and we are going to push you. 
It's yeah. not going to be incredibly easy. There will be times when you're cold, when you're hungry, when your hands are hurting, things don't seem to work and you want to quit. And we don't care. Yeah. Like we do. We're going to keep you safe always. You'll be but safe. You're gonna do but you're going to struggle things. to learn. Yeah. Absolutely. The struggle is important. That is a key component to learning what you can do and your capabilities in moving through difficulty yeah. is facing it. Yep. And that's something about the training is that when you come out, especially if you do our, our three day course or our four day course, you're going to not be comfortable. This is not something where you're going to be staying in a hotel every night and enjoying. Um, it's going to be driving you to reach down inside, find that intestinal fortitude and see what your grit really is made of. Because you're going, like Brett, like Trent said, you're going to do hard things. And that's the best way to learn is to put yourself in a situation where there is that uncomfortable feeling. Um, it's not a real situation. You're always going to be able to get you medical help. We're always going to be able to get you home. If you, if you just decide, I can't do it, there's a hotel 20 minutes away. But we're hoping that you are coming out here to learn these skills and really have them ingrained within your being so that when the time comes, and God forbid this ever does happen, but if the time comes and you are in that actual, hard, real-life survival situation, you're going to make it through. Yeah, absolutely. In absolute worst-case slash best-case scenario, this stuff is never useful to you because you never need it. And we hope you don't in a survival situation, but never choose to go back out again, anything like that. A little bit of pride in yourself from learning something difficult, something that's a hand skill. You have to do it to accomplish it. A little bit of pride. Even if you end up not caring about that, you're like, I just suffered for a couple of days with a bear of a man and a short caveman. Like, <laughs> that's fine. You're still going to appreciate going back to your life and the amenities more than you had before because... It will be difficult, and that's on purpose. Yeah, but you will walk out with that sense of pride like he's saying, you guys. All right. Well, thank you, thank you, everyone, for supporting the podcast. We hope you've been enjoying the journey. And don't forget to subscribe, okay? Don't, just hit the subscribe button right now while I'm talking so you don't miss out on future episodes. All right. We also want to hear from you directly. As we mentioned earlier in the podcast, uh, so reach out to us directly at owningwildernesslifeskills at gmail.com. We want to hear from you guys. Yeah, and also do not forget to check us out on Facebook. We're posting our podcast on there, but it's also a great way that you can direct message with us if you don't want to email and just to kind of keep you know track of what's going on. Also, we have our website that's going to be dropping here hopefully sometime early in January. And that's where you'll be able to sign up for our courses um, as well as contact us. And we're also going to start posting videos. So that'll be another place that you'll see those. Absolutely. And as always, guys, don't, don't go, go dying, dying in the, the woods. woods.